experiences in our lives, both good and bad, that have kind of shaped and molded us into who we are and the way that we look at things and evaluate circumstances and uh, good things, negative things. Um, But all of our experiences have played a role in who we are today and molded us to some degree. What we're going to take a look at this morning are three questions, and then that's going to transpire into or transpose into three potential lies of the enemy and how the enemy tries to twist things in our lives. So let's start off with three questions this morning. First one, are you happy? See some smiles. That's a good start, right? So how do you at some point in time this week felt happy? Some point in time. That's a pretty good representation. I won't ask us how many of us are there right now, but at least we've had some points in time during, this cor- during the course of this week that we felt happy. Secondly, are your prayers being answered? I won't ask for a show of hands on that one, but just think about that. Are your prayers being answered? And then thirdly, do we have pain in our lives that is so deeply rooted that our perspective is that God must have turned his back on me at that time. Where when we think about those things, maybe we've not been able to get victory over them or we've just struggled to be able to see God's presence in those times. So we're going to talk about these three things. These questions are going to guide us through our conversation this morning. And they're also going to help us understand the way that the enemy tries to get a handle and a hold of our lives. Let's pray as we move into this. Father, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your truth. God, we thank you that we can stand on your truth. And as we do that this morning, I pray that you would speak truth into our lives. In your name, amen. Our texts, we'll have two texts this morning, both out of James, James chapter 1 and James chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles and you would like to turn there, please feel free to do so. We'll read both of these passages. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Flip over a page or two, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, 
that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Another way to look at that verse is repent. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So we're going to use some components of these two passages this morning in the context of the questions that we posed here just a couple of minutes ago. And we're going to tie those in to three lies that Satan tries to use to get a hold of our lives and a hold of our minds. The battle in our lives is in our minds. And we know that. The Bible tells us that. It's very clear. And so if Satan can get a hold of our minds, our perspectives, our thoughts, our contemplations, then he gets a foothold. And the strength that God is going to be able to display in our lives at that point is going to be minimized. So three lies of the enemy. One is we should pursue happiness. Two is that God doesn't answer our prayers. And thirdly, is that I've got pain so deep that God couldn't have been around. And in some cases, in situations like that, I might actually feel like a victim because I have no control. So let's talk about happiness first. Happiness. Happiness is an emotion. It comes and goes. All of us, most of us, at least at some point in time during the course of the week, experience some degree of happiness. But we might not be in the same state now that we were whenever we were happy earlier in the week. Watch our kids, and they go in various modes of being happy. Colin, their four-year-old, is unless he's being reprimanded for something, is almost in a constant state of happiness. And research shows that happiness in our lives goes by a U-curve. We've all been in school, and we know what a bell curve is, where the average is the C, and then the Ds and the Bs, a little fewer, and the As and the Fs, even fewer from that. So we have what we call a bell curve in terms of uh, our grades in school. Well, the happiness curve, if you will, research shows that that's an inverted bell curve. So it's a U, where at the beginning of our lives, there tends to be a pretty good degree of happiness. And as we get older and we gain responsibilities and there's stress that comes in, that happiness level starts to drop. And I'm not sure where it reaches the bottom, but as we continue to get older, it starts to come back up. So we have a U-curve around happiness. And if you do research on happiness, you might find a few things that you question or a few things that you find intriguing. One of the things I found intriguing as I was looking up some research on happiness is one-third of Americans consider consider themselves to be, quote-unquote, very happy. So you might think that's low, you might think that's high, but I think a third. Well, why just a third? Why isn't that higher? Well, a number of reasons. We'll talk about that. But one of the reasons could be the timing, right? You could ask me now how happy I feel that I am, and I might be really happy. And you ask me 30 minutes from now, and it might be very different. So timing is certainly one component of that. If what makes me happy is sitting in a nice chair, reading a good book, 
with the fire on next to me and you ask me right after I do that for about 30 minutes, I'm going to be in a really good mood. I'm going to feel really happy. On the other hand, if I'm an adrenaline junkie and I, what stimulates me is endorphin release and doing bungee jumping or something of that nature, and you ask me what my happiness level is after I read a book next to the fire, it might not be quite so high. Found some statistics that I'm going to talk about around happiness. And some of these things you may feel, yeah, I can relate to that, and others, maybe not. But I'm going to preface this with, I'm not sure I buy into all of these, although the statements from, uh, from this research, they say, are, are at least somewhat sound, although I'm not sure. Number one, there's a link between warm weather and happiness. No, I'm hearing no on that. Okay, warm weather, however, what they found is the temperature that correlated to the most happiness was 57.02 degrees. Oh, that's cold. That's like it was this morning when I came over here, right? So it's not a balmy 85 with a beach and the starfish in front of you. It's 57 degrees. Second, there is a link between happiness and heredity. I see some nods, I see some shakes. One of the challenges that I have with that, I think there certainly is some link between maybe our upbringing, but if we, com- if we say it's heredity, it's, to me, it's a little bit of an easy cop-out. So I'm not happy since it's my parents' fault, right? So I don't have to take responsibility uh, for those things. Number three, I thought this, and I, I can see this one. In a marriage, the husband and the wife are happier when the wife is more attractive than the men. I thought that was always the case, right? (laughs) So, guys, I got news for you. If you look in the mirror and you're thinking that, and we're thinking we're a little bit more attractive than our wives, we got a problem. So, in in a marriage, we're happier whenever the wife is more attractive. Conservatives tend to be happier than independents or liberals from a political standpoint. Men, floral odors can stimulate happiness. So, buy your wife some flowers. I need to internalize that too. Um, Sixth, happier people tend to wear bright colors, specifically yellow. Anybody have yellow on this morning? I see a yellow there toward the back, kind of yellowish-orange, right? Not a whole lot of yellow around. I I wore a yellow tie. That was by design. Um, Mastery of something is often linked to happiness. So we feel good about something that we're doing. It is better to give than to receive that actually correlated to happiness. We found, what was found in the research is that whenever we buy something and give it away, that brings us a greater level of happiness than buying something for ourselves. In addition to that, purchasing an experience typically correlated greater than purchasing an item. So if I buy something, it gives me happiness for a period of time, but if I buy an experience, whether that's taking the kids to the park or whatever that might be, those experiences create memories that last longer. And the last one, music, can help to elevate our mood. We've probably all seen and experienced that. So if we know all this information, why do we struggle with this? Why do we have difficulty with being happy? Society tells us, if you want it, go after it. If a new car is going to make you happy, go buy a new car if you can. If a relationship is going to make you happy, go pursue that. Society tells us that whatever it is that is going to create happiness, that that's what we should go after. But is there really a lot of truth to that? Or do we get to the end of that 
we get what we think is going to buy us happiness or create happiness for us. And the novelty wears off and now we're not happy anymore. It's like a hamster on a hamster wheel. My niece got a couple of hamsters a few months ago and we were down there visiting them earlier in the summer and this hamster just going at it like full tilt. You ever watch those guys? They get going so fast and then they start just swinging around on the hamster wheel too. But they don't ever get anywhere. They just keep going and going and going and going. And that's what the pursuit of happiness is all about. When we're pursuing happiness and we get to the point where, okay, I got it. This is what I know is going to bring me happiness. The novelty wears off and so does the happiness. Part of the challenge is that what society tells us we should be pursuing doesn't correlate or line up with what the Bible tells us we are to be pursuing. We find in the Bible that whenever you do a search for the word happy or happiness, you get 26 hits on that. Some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament. But all of those situations correlate to an action, some type of activity, or some type of happening. For example, Jonah, whenever, after he had gone and preached to the Ninevites, goes out and he's all grumbly because he didn't want the Ninevites to, to repent. And so he goes outside of the city and God allows a leafy plant to grow up to provide him shade and says Jonah was happy because of the plant. And then the next day, what happens? Some bug comes and eats the plant and all of a sudden Jonah's back to his unhappy state. Similar to us. No, I find myself in that situation. My circumstances make me happy. Then when those circumstances are gone, all of a sudden I'm left with nothing from a happiness standpoint. So what's the key? The key is not to pursue happiness. The key is to pursue God. And when we pursue God, we get something deeper than happiness. We find joy, we find peace, we find contentment. Those things can't be replaced by things. Those are internal components that help me to be defined in who Christ has made me. In our text, James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Say, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's active. That's not a passive component. That's an active thing that we are called to do. Come near to God. Draw near to him. Pursue him. And he will come near to you. It's a promise that as we seek him, he's going to be closer to us. He's going to bring that peace, that contentment, and the joy that goes much deeper than an emotion. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. When you look at this and you correlate it to some other verses from Psalms and other places in the Bible, the clean hands talk about guiltless actions and the pure hearts refer to our attitudes and our motives. God wants our motives to be pure. He wants our actions to be clean. And what allows us to do that is pursuit of him. Colossians 3.15 Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace. That's a promise that he will provide us peace. And he can provide us peace individually. He can provide us peace as a body. So lie number one is we should pursue happiness. How are we going to respond to that? God says that's not what we should pursue. Pursue him. Keep in mind that peace does not imply the absence of turmoil. 
Just because we're pursuing God doesn't mean that we're going to be free from any challenges or difficulty. In fact, we know the contrary because it's a promise that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If it's not now, we know it's coming at some point, and we've all experienced that at some point in our lives too. But we can also, from the other passage, James 1 verse 2, consider it pure joy whenever those things come into our lives. Don't pursue happiness. Pursue God. Second lie. God doesn't answer our prayers. I grew up in church. I remember having discussions or hearing or learning that God always answers prayers. It's either yes, no, or wait. Or some of us might have heard maybe. And there may be truth to that, but I'd like to dive a little bit deeper than that today. Because that's a really easy way to say that God always answers prayers. And as we do that, I want us to think about Jesus. Did Jesus always have his prayers answered? Hmm. I see some shaking of the heads. You know, envision this. We can't be Jesus, but envision this. So you're praying to God the Father, but yet you are God. And so you're praying to, your, you're praying to God the Father, right? He's not praying to himself, but there's a little bit of a dichotomy there. Here's the man that raised the dead, that healed the sick, that gave sight to the blind. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked his father for something. Do we remember what that was? If you can take this cup from me. His desire at that point, because of the pain that he was going through and the anguish that he was experiencing was for that cup to pass from him. If there was any other way for the price of sin to be paid without him going to the cross, he is saying, let this cup pass from me. And the end of that, however, the rest of that prayer, he states, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I submit to us this morning that God does always answer our prayers. Maybe not the way we want them to be. Or maybe the an- not the answer that we're looking for. But the posture that we take in those prayers is what really matters. Verses 2 and 3 in James chapter 4 says, You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you do it to receive um, because you, ha- you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So you may spend what you get in your own pleasures. God calls us to be submissive just like Jesus was in, her, in his prayer. And in that submission, that allows us to be able to accept the yes, the no, and the wait. Regardless of where we are. And we know that the, tr- the testing of our Our faith develops perseverance. And sometimes that's what God's trying to provide in us. But we've got to see that in the context of those challenges. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 also talk about the fact that because we have a high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses, that because of that, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. So we have that opportunity to be able to come boldly but at the same time to be submissive in a posture that allows God 
not for us to be in control or us to feel like we need to be in control, but to accept his control. So I think about our kids. You know, our kids, whenever they want something, they come boldly. Mom, Dad, I want this. Can I get it? Every time you go to Target, it's always something. They've got to go to the toy section. We were there yesterday. And it's always, I don't have one of these. Okay, well, that's fine. No, I need one of these. No, you don't need one of those. But regardless of when they've gotten a new toy, they are not ashamed or bashful when we go back to Target to let us know that they need another one. Needless to say, we don't buy one every time that we go. But sometimes there's a molding component in that, that we're trying to help them develop patience and help them understand that they don't get everything that they always want and desire. What if that's what God's trying to work in us at times too? James 1, verse 5. Some context around this. If any of you lacks wisdom... You should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. I've heard it stated that this is kind of a a blanket promise that we'll always understand the things that come into our lives. And I would say that that's not necessarily true. But if I need wisdom, I can ask of God and he'll give it to me. Yes, he will give it to me. That doesn't mean that he's going to show me today exactly where every piece of my life fits into the puzzle. But what it does assure me is that when I am in, when I am in submission to him, there is an acknowledgement and an understanding that just like a parent with my child trying to mold them, he does the same thing with us. And that there's purpose behind what takes place. And then I can acknowledge from a submissive standpoint, from a posture of accepting that he knows what's best, that all, that all these things, w- within them, the wisdom applies to my perspective. And I hold to the fact that he is sovereign and that he controls everything in my life. You know, I heard... Um, a quote from a lady that was actually a series of like 45 different quotes from a lady at the end of her life. And one of them stated, everything can change in the blink of an eye, but don't worry, God never blinks. And when you think about that, and we think about circumstances and situations in our lives where God hasn't seemed to answer our prayers, we can hold to the fact that he wasn't blinking whenever we sought him. He just had something different and better for us in store. So lie number two is that God doesn't answer our prayers. He does. But what is our posture and our position when we approach him? Third lie of the enemy is my pain is so deep that God couldn't have been present, which can ultimately take me to a place where I feel like maybe I've been victimized. Now we've all had circumstances and situations that have caused pain in our life. May have been a friend. I was telling the first service, Ethan has one of his, uh, so Ethan's our eight-year-old, one of his best friends at school, I don't know, a week or two ago. He came home and he was a little bit distraught and he said, yeah, my best friend told me I wasn't his only best friend today. So that's painful for an eight-year-old. 
we have had situations where people in our lives have hurt us. Friends, maybe family members, parents, brothers, sisters, maybe bosses in our line of work, colleagues in our line of work, maybe somebody else in the church that has created some pain in our lives. We've all had circumstances. We've all had experiences that have caused pain. And some of us have pain that is just deeply, deeply enrooted to the point where when we look at it, we don't get victory over it. Submit another thing to take into consideration as we're looking at this too, and that's self-condemnation. Satan will take a hint of truth and expand it to where we start condemning ourselves. I'm not good enough. I can't sing well enough. I can't speak well enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not tall enough. That's one I struggle with. Um, all these things. I don't have enough faith. That's one that he really takes and misconstrues. Why aren't I getting answers to my prayer? Because I don't have enough faith. So I pray and I, I strive to have enough faith. Oh, Mike, you don't have enough faith. That's why you're not getting this. And Satan takes and twists that. And then the struggle, it's a vicious cycle and we never get victory over that. Or there's pain in our lives from our childhoods even that we struggled with as well. Situations where we've been hurt by other people, I'm not saying that we negate the responsibilities of other people and what they say. There are times whenever people say things or do things to us, and the Bible's pretty clear on that whenever we have hurt someone or someone has hurt us that we go to the person and we try to work that out. But how do we deal with things whenever that doesn't lead to resolution? Because that's when Satan really gets a hold of us. As we look at this, one's the thing about Job. Put yourself in Job's shoes. So Job's sitting at his house, and one of his servants comes barreling in the door. He says, Job, your oxen and your donkeys have been taken by the Sabaeans, and they also slew your servants, and I'm the only one that escaped to let you know. In the middle of that sentence, another servant comes in says fire burned your sheep and your servants in the midst of that another servant comes in says the chaldeans raided and took your camels and slew all your servants and before he could even finish that statement a fourth servant comes in says there was a mighty wind that destroyed the house that your children were in and they all died you talk about somebody that has a right to feel mistreated if it's anybody, it would be Job. And we think and we look at what Job did in that situation. You know, I'd like to think if that ever happened in my life, I pray it never does. But if that happened in our lives, what would our response be? We're told that Job tore his robe, he shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshipped God. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So what do we get out of that? That allowed Job to be able to deal with that. Not only was he in a place of submission to accepting it, but he was in a place of being able to see God in it. The Lord gave, and the Lord has allowed this to be taken away. And God's in that. 
as much pain as that causes, as much hurt as that creates, and as difficult as that is for me to deal with, God is in it. This is something I learned from Tim about a year and a half ago, that there are circumstances in our lives, and until we can see God in it, not just submit to, to, to he's allowed that to happen, but to see his hand in those things, Satan's going to keep twisting that knife. And we're never going to get victory. We've got to be able to see God in those circumstances. And that is not an easy thing to do. Especially when there's such deep-rooted hurt and pain. And I don't have to know where that piece of the puzzle fits. I just have to know that there is a piece. And at some point in time, it's going to fit. And whenever I acknowledge that and I submit that and I see God in those circumstances, that allows me to gain victory over the lie that Satan has me believing. Now, Christine and I had been married, share a situation with you. Christine and I had been married, uh, I don't know, seven, eight years, and I've checked with her to make sure this was okay for me to share. So, uh, But we were driving back. My parents live about two hours from here. We were living in Virginia at this point in time. We were driving back to Virginia after visiting my parents for a weekend. We didn't have any kids yet. It was dark. It was kind of a cold evening. I don't know if it was November, December, January, but it was pretty chilly. And it was one of those times in your marriage where, you know, you're, you're not like this. In fact, we were probably a little bit more like this. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to spearhead this. We're going to have a discussion about this, and we're going to knock this out. And I asked her, I said, so do you feel like you've sacrificed things in your life for our, our relationship and for our marriage. And most of us, if we look at that, there's, there are things that we've sacrificed, right? And so it wasn't surprising to me that she said, yeah, I feel like I've sacrificed some things and given up some things. But to my stupidity, I, well, that wasn't good enough. So I dug a little deeper and I said, do you regret it? And I don't remember if there was just silence in the car or if there was a yes on the end of that. Either way, the message was sent. And I remember at that point, she said, I feel trapped. And I remember having difficulty breathing whenever she said that. It was like Satan took a bind, a bond, put it around my chest and just started squeezing it. My first reaction, my visceral reaction was, well, and I didn't say this, so, but my, I thought it, well, why did you marry me then? Why did you say yes when I asked you? The first thought was to cast blame. It's the easy thing to do. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. Didn't take me very long, a mile or two to get over that. And then I started looking a little bit more internally, and then self-condemnation started to develop. And then I started questioning God. Here's somebody that I love, that I care for deeply, that feels trapped and doesn't know where to go. So I started questioning God. So God, why did you let us even get here? Well, you allowed us to get here because I made the wrong decision in pursuing her as my spouse. And I can honestly tell you at that point what I wanted to do was just pull the car over. We were, I remember where it was in Virginia. It was, we, were, we had turned on from routes, Route 151 to Route 6, and there's a pull-off right there. 
where I could have parked the car and just run out into a field, and that's exactly what I felt like doing. I couldn't see God in that. I didn't see God in that. I'd like to say I wanted to see God in that, but I'm not exactly sure. But at that point, I felt like a victim. Why did this happen? Why were we in a spot where we were at that point in time? And there wasn't really an explanation for it. So needless to say, fast forward a number of years after that, we're in a very different spot. But some of us have probably experienced that in our relationships too, where whether it's our relationship with God or our relationship with other people, where they're strained and they're stressed and it's difficult to see God in those things. Look back now and see how God was working at that point in time and where he's brought us to today. I'm very, very thankful. But it did take some perseverance. The testing of your faith brings perseverance. So I'd like to take a look at a prayer that I found on the Internet. This was months and months ago. I'd like to tie these principles into this prayer. And as we read through this, I'd like us to evaluate our prayers. And do our prayers maybe resemble this type of prayer at all? So I ask God for strength that I might achieve. I ask God for health that I might do greater things. I ask for riches that I might be happy. I ask for power that I might have the praise of men. I ask for all things that I might enjoy life. Does that represent, not word for word, but maybe a lot of our desires as well? Nothing wrong with wanting joy. Nothing wrong with wanting to enjoy life. Nothing wrong with wanting strength and health. Power and riches might be a little bit self-serving, but if ultimately the perspective on that is for, um, for the benefit of God and serving him, we might be able to justify and rationalize that as well. So this is only part of the prayer. We're going to look at the rest of the prayer here momentarily. But I want to give you some context. And as I give you context, I would like us to think about the things in our lives in context of who God is. And in context of who we are in God's sight. Josh preached last week about us being sons and daughters. And that's the context that we need to look at things in our lives with that particular view. So the context of this particular prayer, like I said, this is only part of the prayer. In the Civil War, this prayer, the rest of it that I'm going to show you, was found on the body of a Confederate soldier. And it was found at a place called Devil's Den. Have any history buffs in here? Okay, got a few. All right, so Devil's Den is about 500 yards west of Little Round Top on the battlefield of Gettysburg. In the Battle of Gettysburg, the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg, July 2nd, 1863, there was severe fighting here. You see the rocks. You can envision hand-to-hand combat. There was a lot of death that ensued from that day. It was one of the very few Confederate victories that were won in the Battle of Gettysburg, but this was one of them. But they paid a price. The Union Army lost about 800 men that day. The Confederate Army 
1,800. So there was a great degree of sacrifice. This particular soldier died in that battle. And the prayer is what was found. So let's look at the rest of this with the context. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am, among all men, most richly blessed. So how can you have a situation where there is acknowledgement that he got nothing that he asked for, but everything that he desired, everything that he had hoped for? How do we answer that question? Because of his posture in his life before God. We can ask, we can ask boldly, but ultimately there's got to be a submission. A submission to who God the Father is and who we are in his sight. And in this situation, we see that exemplified. There's a humility here that is exemplified for us and a position that God calls us to as well. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Matthew 23.12, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is another promise. This is truth, truth that we can stand on. Not that we're going to be rich, not that we're not going to have turmoil, but that we will be exalted. So let's go back to those three questions for this particular Confederate soldier. Was he happy? Probably not. He was fighting in a war. Probably wasn't happy. But do you sense a peace and a contentment and a joy that can't be replaced by anything else in his words? Were his prayers answered? He says he got nothing that he asked for but everything that he hoped for. Because of his posture before God, everything that he sought, even if it was not stated, was given to him. Did he consider himself a victim? Well, we don't see that evidenced here. There was a submission to the authority that was in place over him that he was called to be a Confederate soldier, and he did what he was called to do. It's not an easy thing. But we don't see that he felt that he was a victim. So what about us this morning? Who are we seeking? What are we seeking? Are we seeking happiness? Are we seeking happiness in something? Are we seeking someone or someone else? Or are we truly seeking God? What's our posture when we pray? 
we pray with faith, but ultimately do we submit to his sovereignty? And thirdly, can we acknowledge that all things work together for good? As we are told in his word. And therefore, circumstances, pain, hurt, do not control me or dictate my joy. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for your goodness to us. And Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty. God, we thank you that we are sons and daughters. God, that you love us and that you mold us. And God, that there is purpose to our lives and we can hold to that. God, we thank you for the way that you do express your love. God, we ask that you would continue to work in us. God, allow us to be obedient to the leading of your spirit in your name. Amen.